0: Good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks. I'm one of the elders here at Covenant Hope Church. Let me add my welcome uh, to those of you who perhaps are visiting for the first time. Really glad that you came to join us this afternoon. Wales is a country that borders England on its western side, and in the 1700s, the mid-1700s, the southern part and the western part of Wales had experienced Christian revival. But the north was a spiritual wasteland. When a preacher preached in a northern city of Bala, the service was disrupted and the pastor was nearly killed by an angry mob. One older citizen wrote about the town, Bibles were very scarce… Gluttony, drunkenness, and sexual immorality flooded the land. From the pulpits, the name of the Redeemer was hardly ever heard, nor the sinfulness of man, nor the influence of the Holy Spirit. And of course, as a result, very few wanted to go and do ministry in northern Wales. But in God's providence, a man named Thomas Charles from Oxford, a preacher, married a young woman from Bala, And for her sake, he moved to Bala in northern Wales to begin ministry in that difficult place. He began to preach the gospel regularly and widely. Progress was slow. He opened Christian schools to teach illiterate children how to read, and he taught them with the Bible. They memorized long portions of Scripture together. He began to try to influence other pastors and preachers around him. His ministry slowly, slowly began to bear fruit. People began to turn to the Lord in faith. And then in 1791, the beginning of a great awakening happened. It lasted for years there in the northern region of Wales. And in 1795, it's recorded that moral change that occurred was immense and permanent throughout the region. In one church's association records, it said, while family worship had been virtually unknown for the 60 years prior to that, now, by the grace of heaven, there are hundreds of families worshiping God in every county. When the Lord advances the church and the gospel, He does it through many different means. But the gospel is always at the heart of it. And that's what we find in our passage today, which happens 2,000 years before today, literally. And since that time, wherever there's revival, wherever the church is advancing, wherever the gospel is making inroads, The Lord is doing it by similar various means. Our passage today, it's a long passage if you didn't notice, (laughs) and it entirely covers the founding of the church in the city of Ephesus and in the region of Asia. Now, if you'll turn to your bulletins on page 13, we have a new map. A new map to show you because we've started in on Paul's third and final missionary journey. Last week we saw Paul make it all the way back to Antioch, which is on the far right side of the map. That's where the church was that sent him out originally. And in today's passage, Paul travels all the way through Galatia and the southern part of Asia over to the western coast of what is labeled there as Asia and what's today Turkey to the city of Ephesus. And everything that we're reading today in our passage happens in Ephesus and in Asia broadly. We'll cover the rest of Paul's third missionary journey in the coming weeks. But toward the end of The passage today will find that Paul is setting a new course to visit many of the churches that he had already planted in Macedonia and Greece before heading back to Jerusalem with a long-term goal of eventually getting to Rome. In last week's passage, Paul and his ministry team stayed for what was likely over two years proclaiming the gospel in the city of Corinth, which was a city that was known as a center of international trade and idolatrous immorality. Now, after the church was established and strengthened in that city, he stopped briefly in Ephesus where he left his ministry teammates Priscilla and Aquila before sailing on back to Jerusalem and, of course, making it then northward to Antioch and Syria. Now, remember, when I describe Asia, of course, I'm not speaking of the continent of Asia. I'm speaking about the western part of what we call Turkey today. What I want you to see in this true story of how the Ephesian church and the churches throughout Asia sprang up is that we advance the gospel through faithful proclamation, the Spirit's power, and God's providential protection. So there's three points in this afternoon's sermon. Proclamation, power, specifically the Spirit's power, and providence, the providence of God. The first way that we see the advance of the gospel there in Ephesus in Asia is through gospel proclamation. And we see it in verses 24 of chapter 18 through verse 10 of 19. That's the first point, proclamation. Proclamation that's faithful. But what we're going to see is that there are many different kinds of proclamation, actually. First, we see both public preaching and private instruction. And both, of course, are a form of proclamation. In the last five verses of chapter 18, Luke introduces us to a Jewish Christian named Apollos. He's in Ephesus. And then we'll learn in the first few verses of chapter 19 that Paul is making his way overland through Galatia on his way to Ephesus, but he's not there yet. In the meantime, we learn about Apollos that he is a native of Alexandria, Egypt. He's a polished public speaker, and he's competent in the Jewish scriptures. He's fervent in spirit, it says in our passage. In other words, he's zealous. He's an enthusiastic preacher. And he teaches accurately about Jesus in the synagogue, though he only knew about the baptism of John, John the Baptist, that is. He knew about Jesus, but he must not have known about the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit what we can say about apollos is that he's a promising evangelist with room to grow and it's priscilla and aquila that godly couple whom paul dropped off in ephesus who recognize this promise in apollos they recognize both what's lacking in apollos's knowledge of the gospel and the potential for how God might use Apollos in even greater ways. Look at verse 28 with me. It says there, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So Apollos was proclaiming the gospel in public, but Priscilla and Aquila's private instruction for him, of course, is a form of proclamation and teaching that led to his growth in usefulness to the Lord. What a wonderful example that of this couple encouraging in their partnership in the gospel. I love seeing the way that Priscilla and Aquila, they weren't competitive with Apollos, but they were seeking to build him up. And when they recognized that he needed to be corrected, they did it privately and with the goal of encouraging and equipping him, not criticizing, not tearing him down. Later, when Apollos wanted to travel over to Corinth to minister to the church in Greece, they would have been some of the ones who wrote letters of endorsement for him, saying, he's a good guy, he loves the Lord, he's very gifted. And the result was, of course, that the Corinthian church was built up and blessed by this young preacher. When you recognize a defect in a young, enthusiastic Christian, is it your first impulse to criticize or to come alongside them and gently instruct them? Loving correction combined with hopeful vision for how God could use Young Christians will lead the church to being blessed and God being honored by our loving partnerships all for His sake. Loving correction combined with a hopeful vision. That's what we need when we see young Christians who need to be built up and encouraged. Now in verses 1-7 through in chapter 19... They describe more proclamation of the gospel, but this time it's coming from Paul because he's finally arrived back in Ephesus. And when he gets to Ephesus, he meets a group of 12 men who claimed to be disciples, but when Paul asked them if they received the Holy Spirit when they believed, they replied that they don't even know what or who the Holy Spirit is. They've only been baptized into John's baptism not into the name of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul shared with them the news about the Lord Jesus, about his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the coming of the promised Holy Spirit for those who believe in him. And when Paul, the apostle, laid his hands on them, they began to speak in tongues and prophesy. John the Baptist, of course, was the last prophet belonging to what we would consider to be the Old Testament era But when Jesus comes, he ushers in the new covenant era. And these men are essentially stuck in an Old Testament understanding of the Lord and his relationship with mankind. And so Paul preaches the good news of Jesus to them, and they're brought into new covenant faith. And so then they had a mini Pentecost-like experience on that day with Paul. Just like the Jews did in Jerusalem in chapter 2 of Acts. Just like the Samaritan believers did up in Samaria in chapter 8 of Acts. And now it's happening here as the gospel continues to spread to the ends of the earth. Some denominations, of course, will look to this episode in Ephesus and they demand that receiving the Holy Spirit comes after trusting in Christ, and it will every time. It's also, this passage is used to argue that speaking in tongues is absolutely necessary as proof of salvation. But this event is unique in so many different ways. It's happening in this overlap of time between the old covenant ways and the new covenant ways. The Bible doesn't teach as normal that receiving the Spirit happens later than initial repentance and belief. Nor does it teach as normal that everyone must speak in tongues and prophesy as evidence of conversion. The rest of the New Testament will tell us that. Now, this episode with Paul sharing the gospel with these 12 men is an example of more private proclamation as well, just like we saw with Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos. But the next three verses, verses 8 through 10, more broadly describe the ministry of proclamation that Paul engaged in for more than two years in Ephesus. And he did it in so many other cities just like this. First, Paul would go into a synagogue and preach the gospel there. And then when the Jews would end up rejecting the good news of Jesus Christ... He would move on and begin to preach the gospel to Gentiles outside the synagogue. For example, look with me at verse 9. It says, Some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's Christianity, before the congregation. That's the congregation of the synagogue. So then Paul, of course, began to proclaim the kingdom of God, it says, in what we might call a secular space a place called the Hall of Tyrannus. Now, we don't, we don't really have much information about the Hall of Tyrannus, nor do we learn much about Tyrannus himself. It's a name. He must have been a philosopher or an educator of some kind who owned this lecture hall. Paul probably rented space in that lecture hall to give his own lectures, probably in the hot hours of the afternoon when most people in this region would have been taking a siesta, but Paul would use it to proclaim the gospel there. What's clear is that Paul was committed to proclaiming the kingdom of God in any and every kind of space. Religious spaces, like the synagogue, and secular spaces, like the Hall of Tyrannus. Now, You'll hear the gospel every week preached here in our gatherings at Covenant Hope Church. It's a wonderful place, of course, to bring your non-Christian friends who want to explore Christianity. Every week, I hope to give some guidance to those of you who aren't familiar with Christianity as we walk through these passages in the Bible. But we Christians, we members of Covenant Hope Church, we need to also proclaim Christ outside of this gathering… There are so many people, so many people here in Dubai, for example, who for one reason or another will not come to a gathering like this. And so we need to fill places like university campuses or the canteens of office buildings throughout the city or coffee shops that are just down the street from your apartment or your villa with conversations about Jesus Christ. It was through Paul's two years of lectures and daily reasoning in the hall of Tyrannus that Luke tells us in verse 10 all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. All the residents. Christians proclaim the good news of Jesus and his kingdom through private instruction, through public addresses, in religious gatherings in the church and out in all the places where people might gather for conversation. The gospel advances when we tell the news of Jesus everywhere to everyone. But the gospel isn't only a message that comes with words. It must come with words, but it also comes with God's power, spiritual power, the power of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. And that's another way that the gospel advanced in Ephesus and can still advance today, in fact, even in Dubai and anywhere around the world for that matter. That's the second point this afternoon, power, spiritual power. We see that in verses 11 through 20 of chapter 19. Paul's reasoning was persuasive, but God was also confirming the message And his apostolic spiritual authority through extraordinary miracles, it tells us here in these verses. Verses 11 and 12 describe amazing healings and exorcisms that Paul was performing. And of course, the focus really isn't even so much on Paul here. Luke describes the miracles that God was doing by the hands of Paul. God is the focus. Now, it's interesting, of course, even articles of clothing that had touched Paul were enabling sick people to become well and demon people, demon-possessed people, demon people to have spirits cast out of them. The Lord, in His mercy, enables some of these miracles to happen in order to give evidence to people hearing the gospel message that Christ has conquered sin and death. And that defeat has come to Satan and has been assured by Christ's death on the cross, by his resurrection from the grave and his ascension into heaven where he rules now. In order to understand the good news of Jesus, you have to first understand the bad news of Satan. It was Satan who entered into the Garden of Eden where God had lovingly placed Adam and Eve and had provided everything that they needed to flourish, not least of all, free access to himself. They walked and talked with him. But when Adam and Eve listened to Satan and they ate the fruit that God had forbidden, the result was that their sinless nature was replaced with a sinful nature. And they became bent then towards sin and rebellion against the Lord. And as their descendants, we too have been born with a sinful nature. When we sin, and we all sin, we're honoring not God, but we're honoring Satan. It's that serious. We're demonstrating that we're under Satan's sway and control. But Christ came into the world to break the power of Satan over people. His death on the cross paid the penalty that we owed to God, and His resurrection clinched the victory over Satan and sin and death. And now anyone can be freed from slavery to Satan and our sin nature by repenting and believing in Christ. The good news of Jesus is that God's purifying and freeing power can be at work in anyone. Satan is still at work in the world, and he's still at work in people who are under his influence, but only those people who bow the knee to Christ have access to the power of Christ. Now, that was made plain to the residents of Ephesus and Asia when the story of these seven sons of Skeva spread far and wide. These were seven sons of a Jewish exorcist named Skeva. They themselves were exorcists going around trying to cast out demons from people, and they tried to harness the power of Christ over evil spirits by simply using the name of Jesus, just like Paul did. But the evil spirits don't bow simply to the name of Jesus. And so the man whom these seven sons of Sceva were trying to cast the demons out of, it says in verse 16, overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. The power wasn't simply in the words that Paul had spoken. The power was in King Jesus himself and the spirit that he had sent into the world whom Paul worshipped. You may long for Christ's power to break you out of the bondage of sin, and he can. But it won't come to you simply by reading or repeating the words of the Bible or, or Chanting a particular prayer or attending church so many days in a row. That's not how it works. No, you must give your life to Christ. You must repent of your rebellion against Him. Humble yourself and tell the Lord Jesus that you know that you have sin in your life. List it if you must before Him, tell Him about the lies. The lust, the pride, the theft, the anger, the envy. Now, once you've done that, turn from those things and turn to Him in faith. Tell Him, forgive me, Lord. I want to live my life entirely for You. It's not so important what exact words do you use but I'm urging you to bow the knee to Jesus. Give your life to Him. That's when the power of Christ can flood into you. Now, I'm not promising miracles of healing in your life. The Lord may grant that, but Christ does promise His power will begin to work in you overcoming sin and rebellion and the power of Satan if you turn to Christ in faith. And that's what began to happen with great effect throughout Ephesus and Asia as people turned to the Lord. Verses 17 through 20 describe believers who had turned to Jesus, but of course were perhaps still caught up in the occult and the magic arts that owe their power to Satan The words of Jesus' power over Satan convicted them, and they brought their books of magic spells and curses, and they burned them in the sight of all, it says. It was a great sign of Satan's power over them being broken and destroyed. Burning those books came at great financial cost as well to these believers The value of these books in today's world would have been almost 200 million dirhams. Turning your back on sin and a life that honors Satan and not God, it oftentimes comes with a cost. It will cost you your pride. It will cost you perhaps people that you counted as friends. It might even cost you money. But you can't put a price tag on knowing Jesus and the freeing power of the Holy Spirit. It's worth more than all the money in the world. Turn to Christ. Paul must have surely been thinking of those demonstrations of spiritual power back in Ephesus when he wrote to the Ephesian church. And he prayed in what we call the letter to the Ephesians, in the first chapter, he prayed that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then in the last chapter of his letter to the Ephesians, he urged them to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, if you're caught in the clutches of sin, count the cost and flee to Christ for strength and freedom. Tell your brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to be free. Here is my sin. I want to confess it before you. The cross will take away your shame. Now, you may not have occult books to burn, but to renounce your sin and attack it with the white hot power of the Spirit is the only path to freedom and peace, brothers and sisters. Jesus died so that you could have access to his resurrection power. Don't take it for granted. Now look with me at verse 20 in this section that we've been looking at just now. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The gospel advanced in Ephesus and all of Asia through faithful proclamation and then these demonstrations of the Spirit's power, but it also advanced through the providential protection of the Lord. And we see that in verses 21 through 41. The third point this afternoon is providence, the providence of God. At this point in the story of the gospel's advance in Asia, Paul and his ministry partners have been there for well over two years. And it's at this point that Paul resolved that it was time for him to leave Ephesus. He intended to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, which is today, Greece, in order to visit the churches there and then return to Jerusalem. But in his heart and mind, he ultimately had a fourth journey in mind. He wanted to get to Rome, to preach the gospel there. And so he sent two ministry partners, Timothy and Erastus, off to Macedonia to pave the way for his arrival there. When we read the rest of the New Testament, we realize that it's likely that Timothy and Erastus went to not only prepare the way spiritually, but to help those churches collect a financial offering that they were going to give to Paul to take back to Jerusalem. But before Paul could leave town, the Lord demonstrated his providential care over the church amidst an angry and violent attack from those who opposed the gospel. There in Ephesus was a temple built to honor the goddess Artemis. A thriving business of crafting silver idols existed there in the city. But because the gospel was spreading so much amongst the population of the region, the idol-making business was beginning to suffer. People who had turned to Christ didn't want to buy idols to Artemis anymore. Demetrius, was a leading silversmith who gathered other craftsmen. And in verses 24 through 27, he rallied them with an angry speech against Paul specifically, who was known as the one who had brought Christianity to Ephesus and the region. Demetrius was smart, of course. And so he didn't argue directly that it's just that it was costing him financially that Christianity was taking root there. Instead, he argued that Paul taught that idols weren't really gods and that there was a great danger posed by people like Paul that would lead to the temple of Artemis being regarded as unimportant in the world. And that in his own words, he says that she, Artemis, may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and all the world worship. It's quite a shrewd speech, And this rally that he had gathered quickly turned into a riot. The craftsmen were enraged. They rushed into the amphitheater of Ephesus, chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, over and over again. And soon the whole city was in confusion. People were pouring into the theater, participating in the riot, without even knowing why they had shown up or what the riot was all about. It's the way riots work. Paul wanted to speak to the crowd, but the disciples convinced him not to. Some friends of Paul who were leaders in the region, they were called Asiarchs here in our passage. They sent messages to Paul urging him not to go into the theater. It was too dangerous. A Jew named Alexander even tried to address the crowd, but for over two hours, the crowd kept chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They wouldn't let him talk. Now, it was a dangerous situation that threatened to result in violence and the beginning of persecution of the church in the region there. We've seen it happen already in the pages of Acts in prior chapters. Paul had faced angry crowds before, of course. He'd been stoned in Lystra. He'd been beaten and jailed in Philippi. He'd narrowly escaped a violent crowd in Thessalonica. But no matter what was happening, Christians... And Paul himself could be confident in the providence of God ultimately protecting the advance of the gospel. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is a list of questions and answers that teaches theology from the Bible. And the Shorter Catechism answers the question, what is the providence of God with this answer? God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all His creatures and all their actions. All His creatures, all their actions. J.I. Packer puts it even more simply. He says, God is completely in charge of His world. His hand may be hidden, but His rule is absolute. We could say this riot in Ephesus was a a ticking time bomb getting ready to explode on the young church, but God was in control. And this time in God's providence, the bomb was disarmed not by Paul nor by any other Christian for that matter, but by the town clerk. In verses 35 through 41, the town clerk did what no one so far had been able to do. He quieted the crowd and he reasoned With them, which is not very often successful when it comes to angry crowds. He argued that everyone knows that Artemis and her temple are great, no one can deny it. He argued that Paul and his partners in ministry haven't blasphemed the goddess. And he argued finally that, furthermore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen have a complaint against Paul and his compatriots, that they can take it up in the courts or with the Roman proconsuls. And he finally rounded off his persuasive argument by warning the crowd that it wasn't the worship of Artemis that was in danger, but that they were the ones in danger of being charged with rioting. In God's kindness, the crowd dispersed. We never know how things are going to work out as we live for Christ in the world, a world that's in rebellion against Him. Yes, it's dangerous in many ways. We might get hurt, it might cost us dearly. Or the Lord might providentially use a non Christian official and the law of the land to protect us, just like He did in this passage. Trusting in the Lord to advance the gospel means always trusting that He is in control. He's in control in pandemics, in control in the midst of violence, and when the odds seem stacked against us, when we're surprised by the opposition we we face, and when we see it coming. J.I. Packer again says, The doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces like fortune, chance, luck, or fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned, and each event comes as a new invitation to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that everything that happens is for our spiritual and eternal good. Is trust... And obedience and rejoicing your attitude in the midst of whatever you're experiencing in life right now. I promise you, the Lord is in control. God is completely in charge. We can trust Him, brothers and sisters. Just as the Lord used private and public proclamation. He used demonstrations of the Spirit's power and his providential control over everything to advance his gospel in Ephesus and Asia 2,000 years ago. The Lord that we serve here in Dubai is the same Lord. And he is often at work in our lives and in our midst in many of the very same ways advancing the gospel. He's multiplying his church and he's strengthening and sanctifying every single believer as they walk in obedience to him. Do you see the evidence of the Lord's work in your life and in the life of our church, Covenant Hope, here in Dubai? I hope you do. Brothers and sisters, let's keep faithfully proclaiming the good news here. Let's keep proclaiming Praying for demonstrations of the Spirit's power to further break the bonds of sin and Satan in our lives. And let's trust in His providential protection and praise Him in advance. The Lord works in all kinds of ways to advance the gospel. He can't be stopped, He won't be thwarted. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that with or without us, you are advancing the gospel. You did it from the time that you poured out the Spirit on your people in Jerusalem, and you continue to do it 2,000 years later in places like Dubai and in churches like ours. We praise you, Lord Jesus, We pray that you would help us to recognize it, to participate in all you're doing, and to praise you and rejoice in all that you're doing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.